Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, December 17th, day 72 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor, David Horowitz. Hi, David. Hi, Amanda. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz gave a press conference last night following the tragic accidental killing of three Israeli hostages in Gaza on Friday morning. We'll also hear highlights of David's interview with Major General Tamir Heyman, a former head of military intelligence. All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. The IDF announced this morning that 121 soldiers have fallen since the Gaza offensive was launched. This morning, the IDF said it carried out a strike against the Hezbollah site in southern Lebanon following attacks on northern Israel, as well as a drone strike in the West Bank. But in Israel, most Israelis are still reeling from the tragic accident on Friday morning, which saw IDF soldiers operating in really impossible conditions break protocol and shoot and kill three Israelis who were taken hostage to Gaza. They were Yotam Chaim, Samar Talalka, and Alon Shamriz. Last night in a three-way press conference, the leaders of the war effort responded in very different ways, I would say. So what, first of all, was the prime minister's message, David? Well, as you said earlier there, Amanda, you know, all of Israel's reeling. And I, I do think, um, I don't think this is a turning point in the war. I'm not sure it's a turning point in, in Israeli public opinion, but it's a devastating event and uh, heartbreaking Um and without wanting to be melodramatic in any way, the results compared to what could have been uh, are, are a factor here. You know, imagine these three, and we don't know exactly how it is that they came to not be being held. Uh, the army has said either they were abandoned by their captors who presumably were fleeing, um, or they had somehow managed to escape. Um, but they they were... They were, they were not with their captors, and they tried, as the chief of staff said, by every means that they could to, to make plain that they were not a threat. They stripped to the waist, and they, and they had an improvised white flag. Uh, imagine if they had been safely embraced by the IDF and how the nation would have felt, and also you know, the vindication of, of a core strategic um, framework asserted by both the government and the army that the only 
way to get hostages out is through the ground offensive combined with diplomacy. And here would be would have been proof that the ground offensive in one way or another had enabled three hostages to, to be safely returned. Instead, um, this tragedy. Um, Netanyahu's response was to, to state his and the nation's heartbreak um, and to say clearly, and I think this, you know, this was echoed by Defence Minister Gallant as well. Um, uh, it may have been said by, by War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz too, um, that the war goes on um, and the war has to go on because Hamas has to be eliminated and the war, the ground offensive in particular, serves that second need as well. Um, when I say second, I don't think Netanyahu ranks them, although the families of the hostages, I think many of them feel that he does, that eliminating Hamas uh, takes precedence over uh, returning the hostages. I don't think Netanyahu was saying that. I think he was saying both of those goals are served by keeping the ground offensive going. And he he, he sought to, to empathize and he said, you know, they were, they were almost touching salvation when the darkness came. And, and I think that's very resonant for, for the whole nation. I think there's, of course, a third option that they were being used as bait, but that isn't something that we're hearing about at all from anyone, really. But I would say that Gallant's message was one of taking responsibility, first and foremost. Would you agree with that? Well, Gallant stressed that as the the person responsible, for, directly responsible for the security establishment, everything, I think, as he put it, that's happened in the course of the war is ultimately his responsibility. I don't think that that is new. I think he's been wanting to 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 make that uh, acknowledgement uh, throughout this process you know that the army has done the same again throughout this process um including october the 7th that's very striking the, the entire military leadership has said you know we failed israel on october the 7th we are we are responsible uh and with this incident on friday this tragedy on friday the chief of staff herzi alevi yesterday uh, filmed a video statement saying you know, we failed these three. They did everything they could to make us understand, is, is the wording that he used. And the soldiers broke protocol. At the same time, Gallant last night and Herzi Alevi, the chief of staff, earlier yesterday evening, um, stressed the, you, you said, impossible, near impossible conditions in which the soldiers are operating. And, you know, I, I have no direct experience of anything remotely like this. And people who, most of us who don't, can only imagine what it is like, but we are being told what it is like, which is possibly unprecedented uh, um, urban warfare. I mean, that's not unprecedented, but urban warfare in incredibly dense um, areas with two levels, physical levels of threat on, on the ground and, and above it and below the ground. Uh, and what we know from Shijaya, which is this Hamas stronghold, in northern Gaza, uh, is that the fighting has been incredibly intensive for quite a long time. I mean, you know, we've been doing these these daily podcasts, of course, through the war, and there have been many times, I'm sure, in the course of um, the conversations where um, it has been remarked upon that the army says it's exerting greater control over northern Gaza, or even in some cases there have been claims that the army essentially controls northern Gaza. Well, the army does not fully control northern Gaza, and it certainly does not fully control Shijaiya. Um, and as our, our military reporter, uh, Emmanuel Fabian, who was in Shijaiya, um just after uh, Friday's incident, um, can attest, um, the uh, uh, fighting goes on. There are incidents um, 
the incidents that took place immediately before and immediately after uh, the tragedy involving um, Hamas gunmen. Now, I'd, I'd, uh, you, you mentioned the, the notion that maybe these three were being used as a bait. Right? The, the initial probe does not suggest that. Um, it, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been a consideration in the minds of uh, the soldiers. The soldiers are being required, again, to quote Herzi Alevi, to make split-second decisions. Galant said the same thing. And yet, it is quite striking um, how definitive um, the, um, I suppose, upbraiding or, or criticism or acknowledgement that the soldiers broke protocol has been. Uh, if you look at uh, um, what Halevi said, and we have quoted it in the Times of Israel, of course, at some length, um, on the one hand, yeah, we failed these, these hostages. They did everything that they could. Uh, on the other hand, understand the circumstances in which the, the, the soldiers are fighting. And, you know, we had reported just a few days ago um, the number of, uh, quote-unquote, friendly fire fatalities. Uh, this is soldiers killing soldiers uh, in circumstances that, by definition, I imagine, are, are breaches of protocol in many of the cases. Uh, it's not as though the, the tragedy has been reserved for these three hostages. Unfortunately, there have been terrible tragedies. Um, that's, that's what can happen in the, in the impossible situations um, that war, especially war in, in these kinds of circumstances, again, against an enemy that is utterly cynical in using the people it ostensibly governs uh, as, as protection. Uh, and you, you create, you get to a situation where you're in an area where the IDF has, has for a long, long time been urging uh, civilians to depart. Uh, again, from what we understand in Shijaya, it has been very rare, if not more than that, uh, to see civilians there in the last few days. There are no civilians in Shijaya. There are lots of people in civilian clothing who are Hamas gunmen, who produce weapons and come out of nowhere and move from building to building and so on. All of that is relevant for the context in which Friday's tragedy, that's what it is, tragedy, um, took place. I'll just add to that one thing that Gallant mentioned last night, in which there are several cases, apparently, in which uh, Hamas has used uh, baby dolls and the soundtrack of babies crying for to lure soldiers into dangerous booby trap situations. There was a bit of a Q&A after the remarks from the three war cabinet leaders, and uh, there was a very striking final scene, of course. David, do you want to tell us what visual prop our prime minister had? Yeah, there, were, there was, I mean, the, the Q&A is often you know very revealing of course by definition it's not um it's it's the stewards of this war responding to questions for which we should give them credit because for a long time many a very long time Netanyahu did not take questions um and uh, last night uh, was no exception the Q&A was very interesting it was interesting including because Netanyahu um boasted um that he had been the person to prevent the Palestinian state and he said, you know, the, 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 what we've seen from the little state, as he put it in Gaza, referring to Hamas, underlines why he had been right. And again, he, he, he did, as he has done several times, um, portray the Palestinian Authority and Fatah uh, and Hamas as essentially no different in terms of their ultimate goals of, uh, of eliminating Israel, uh, which is a very contentious uh, argument that is certainly not shared by the United States, which thinks a, a, a reformed PA um, must be the, the central player eventually in uh, in Gaza. The final scene that you were uh, referring to um, 
I, I suspect, and I don't think you need to be a particularly astute uh, detective, I suspect the question was planted because Netanyahu had been asked in the past whether he wears the dog tag that many people are wearing uh, with the message to bring the hostages home. There are alternate messages. Some of them say bring the hostages home now, etc. He'd been asked in the past whether he wore this dog tag. Uh, and he said, uh, he, it's by the side of his bed, I think he said, well, the last time he was asked about it. Um, and the, the, um, the, there was some dismay at that response. Um, and last night's shock, he was asked uh, in the final question um, whether he is now wearing the diskette, uh, the dog tag. Um, and a, a, a appearing to profess surprise at being asked, uh, he wordlessly um, opened the, the top buttons of his shirt and extracted uh, the dog tag for all to see. Okay, we'll go to a short break now. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. David, you recently spoke with Major General in Reserve, Tamir Heyman, who spent uh, 34 years in the IDF, culminating in more than three years as head of military intelligence in 2018 to 2021. Right now, he's head of the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University, which is a leading think tank. But in the manner of Maimonides, you brought uh, 13 points to him, including the layout of the Gaza tunnels and, and more. Very serious stuff, actually. Let's start with the layout of the tunnels, which I found really interesting. So it was a very interesting interview. And it was a very interesting interview because this is somebody who until very recently was at the heart of um, of, of the key or a key element of, of the military um, that so signally failed in the run-up to October the 7th. Um, because the intelligence assessments, the assessments, that was the point that he made, um, Were, 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 were wrong and were sort of insistently wrong. And there was a great deal of intelligence, raw information and other data that pointed to Hamas gradually preparing to attack. And because it didn't fit the prevailing assessment, um, it was rejected. On the tunnels, you know, I, I was very struck, as, I, uh, as I'm sure everybody who's followed this was uh, ahead of the war. Um, there was... Uh, ahead of the ground offensive, there was confidence being exuded by people who ought to know, including a former deputy chief of staff, Yair Golan. I remember watching him on on television one morning uh, after October the 7th and before the ground offensive saying, we're not going to be sending soldiers into tunnels. We have techniques. Uh, don't worry, was basically what he was saying. And um, 
uh, Heyman's assessment or his uh, his commentary was not that um, Israel didn't really understand what has happened with the tunnels over the last few years, but that even understanding did not mean that Israel would be easily able and is easily able to tackle these tunnels. I mean, this is a this is an underworld. This is a I don't know an alternate city or even mini nation there below ground that has been built and expanded and protected and developed over much of the period, maybe the entire period um, that Hamas has been controlling Gaza, which now dates back, of course, something like 16 years. And he talked about, uh, he, I mean, if, you, if we want to go into the details, he talked about how the Hamas army is set up into... Um, the 24 battalions, each of whom have their own area and each of all, each of whom have their underground area as well. And I was trying to understand from him my fear that after the truce, for example, the week-long truce at the end of November, um, was there not a danger? I mean, I, I had seen this as a danger. The IDF stops, it keeps its troops in place, but there's no fighting for a week and then everything resumes. What would be stopping Hamas from returning underground? To the areas where the IDF thought that it was in control. And he explained, I think quite clearly, I, I'm not entirely comfortable that I, that, that, that I fully understood his explanation or that I got the full explanation out of him. But what he basically said is that um, the tunnels for each battalion are kind of self-contained, but they also interconnect with other parts of the tunnel network. And the IDF has been among its focuses, straining and focusing on those interconnections um, and trying to uh, target um, the areas where not just the tunnels themselves, but where the, the sections of tunnel for each battalion connect with other uh, uh, sections of the Gaza tunnel network. And he believes that so long as the, the, the fighting is continuing, if those connections are smashed, they remain smashed, but that any kind of sustained halt in the fighting would, of course, give Hamas the opportunity to sort of reopen those connections. So I hope that I understood him correctly, and I hope I've relayed that explanation coherently now. I thought that was really fascinating, of course. And the other part of the interview that I found really eye-opening was when you discussed the role of Egypt before and during what's happening now. Yeah, so he was adamant that Egypt had neither um, facilitated nor turned a blind eye to uh, Hamas's efforts to arm itself with weapons and weapons parts across the Egyptian border. And he was adamant that Egypt has no interest in Hamas being strong or even surviving quite the reverse. Uh, he, he spoke about Egypt's concerns, for example, about um, Hamas trying to push um, Gazans into Egypt or Israel um, ostensibly wanting the same thing, or even a sort of longer-term process. And he cited um, various statements, including by government ministers and, uh, and officials, um, that contradict Israel's official, and I think quite credible, stance that it is not interested in, in forcing um, Gazans into Egypt. The Egyptians are not totally convinced that, uh, that Israel does not intend to do this. What's interesting to me is that I've heard from other pretty credible people something slightly different about what has gone on in previous years. In other words, that Hamas was able um, to get weapons and parts for weapons uh, from across the Egyptian border um, and not only or maybe not uh, so much in tunnels, but over land. So I've heard from, again, from quite credible people that Egypt 
um, may not have wanted, but certainly didn't do what was necessary to stop arms coming across the border. Um, but Tamir Hyman was adamant that that was not the case. And finally, of course, you always have to think about the day after. And what were his thoughts about the day after? Well, he spoke of sort of three elements in a um, in a in a sort of, in a post-war governance of Gaza um, as one possibility, where you would have some kind of international protectorate or mandate or address, um, ideally with the participation of the United States, among others, that was kind of overall in charge and uh, reporting to it uh, would be some kind of civil governance body, he said, involving sort of bureaucrats from Gaza, um, loyal to Fatah as opposed to Hamas, kind of the remnants of the old PA, uh, that was ousted violently by Hamas in 2007, and maybe some elements of local families, local Gaza businessmen, also helping run, administer the, the strip, if you like. Um, I don't think that that sits with uh, Netanyahu's vision of a demilitarized Gaza uh, with the IDF maintaining um, overall security responsibility, especially that second part, because I think what Hyman was was talking about was some kind of international responsibility. I don't know. Maybe there is a way, a way to square that circle. Um, but he was, uh, even as he was saying this, he was not, um, he was saying we need to be very modest um, when when making these kinds of proposals. And I think this is really important, as, as he said, because this is a war zone. And for all that, there is an understandable focus. And by the way, this is really interesting as well. He said that you can't ignore the day after, even at the height of the war, but let's not be immodest about what we think can be engineered here. And, and I asked him, why do you say this, this can't be ignored when the war is you know, still going? And he said, because as Hamas is dismantled, we will reach a stage, and he kind of implied that we're somewhat close to that stage now, where the, the, the tactical procedure of the war has impacts for the day after. In other words, he said, if, for example, you wanted this or that Gaza family to have a role in the civil administration of post-war Gaza, you wouldn't be destroying their physical assets. That was one little example that he had. And if uh, there's to be some kind of international protectorate, well, I think he was kind of saying, well, from where would they govern? Where would they sit? What kind of infrastructure, physical, uh, as well as maybe personal infrastructure, um, would, would they require? These would be considerations that would be relevant once you've reached the point where Hamas is significantly dismantled and you're deciding what it is in Gaza uh, that you should not be targeting and what it is that you should. So again, these are, these are really quite complicated compl- uh, um, uh, considerations being dealt with at a time of immense strain and struggle in the war. I mean, we are not at the day after. um, And I don't know how to assess confidence about how quickly uh, and how definitively uh, Hamas will be dismantled, uh, all of which, you know, mixes in with, well, so and what's the vision for the day after? Wait a minute, are we at the day after yet? Not quite. But are we at the stage where we need to think about the day after as we pursue the war? Well, maybe soon, etc. It's it's that kind of very complicated environment in which you're discussing steps ahead. Listeners, again, I'll leave a link in the program notes. Please check out these 13 different questions to Tamir Hyman. David, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. 
Listeners, thanks for joining me for today's daily briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Thank you.